Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 124, Stop Calling Us a Team. This week we're discussing series 8, episode 10 of Doctor Who, In the Forest of the Night, and season 2, episode 10 of Angel, Reunion. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. So we have uh, Doctor Who first this week in the forest mm-hmm. of the night. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so um, I think you just had one or two little minor production notes that you wanted to mention. Yeah, I wanted to bring up... Um... Uh, this is the another new writer. We've had a few this season, and this is the last one. Um, so kind of worth noting. Um, Frank Cottrell Boyce is his name. Um, and he's actually, I don't really know his work too well, but um, I think he's a pretty well-known and well-established um, writer of uh, 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 screenplays and novels um, and is an actor, too. Um and he actually is known as a children's writer. Um, there was a movie hmm. that I have seen. I don't know whether you've seen it called Millions um, about like um, no. a kid who like finds uh, millions of dollars and sort of his what's he going to do with it. And, and hmm. all these saints come. He's Catholic. So these sort of saints come and talk to him about what to do. Um, okay. And it so and it was a movie. um and then he wrote the novelization for it as well after the movie. Sure. Um, and that uh, the the book won the Carnegie Medal, so um, okay. you know was pretty well received. Um, and he's also written uh, sequels to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as well, and oh. that sort of series of books. Okay. Um, so oh, and also he did the he wrote the opening ceremony for the 2012 London Olympics. Um, where they had all the like children's literature figures come in, like Mary Poppins fought Voldemort and all this kind of crazy stuff. So um, kind of, you know, he seems to be kind of steeped in that, like, you know, British children's tradition. Um, He's also uh, worked with Russell Davies in the past. So there's sort of the, a little bit of a who connection there. Um, And, you know, is another one of these sort of Dr. Who fans turned writers um, so I just kind of wanted to set that up. Um, where would you like to start with this episode? Yeah. So I want to start, um, I guess just sort of with the situation, the overall sort of the overarching story first, um, mm-hmm. and sort of the eponymous themes. Um, so we get, you know, the, the titular forest, Uh, Mm -hmm. which sort of appears overnight. Um, And I was trying to, so I'm actually talking about the title and whatever. And, you know, sort of wondering when you think the forest of the night, you're thinking like the forest in nighttime, but Mm -hmm. that's not actually what we get. We get no. the, I guess of the night is referring to of like a single night that it sort of pops up or something right, like, right, like right. That, that kind of the overnight forest yeah, yeah yeah right yeah that almost seems like it would make more sense like the overnight forest or something like that rather forest of the night but um i mean sort of the idea being yeah that it's this seemingly unnatural 
state of affairs and what we find out is not that it's uh unnatural but it's all it's like the the tolkien's elves sort of like you know more natural than natural <laughs> in a way right, like right. it's it, you know it's actually it's weird because it's completely natural rather than sort of maybe the synthetic world that we're used to um right and right and so the question becomes you know throughout that they sort of that the doctor and uh clara and danny and the children sort of have to work through is you know where did the you know why did this forest sort of pop up what happens to it now like you know what what do we do with this thing that we don't know uh where it came from and and sort of what's going on with it and why is it here um and yeah sorry go ahead no no finish what you're saying well and i, w- I was just gonna say i was gonna kind of go into you know we don't get it till the end but of course we then find out that it's this solar flare that is gonna you know that is impending um and eventually mm-hmm. occurs uh and and so and we get that it's a solar flare similar to the one that took out the bank of carabraxos did i right that yeah. right mm-hmm. um and that and so i wasn't sure if there was a significance to that like if there right. was other than just like oh we've seen this happen before and so here we are happening again but I, you know, the planet has sort of an, an, a built-in, you know, defense mechanism against it, whereas Carabraxus apparently did not. So, right. <laughs> um, you know, so like this is, this seems to be like, uh, you know, a thing that's happened before and, and there are these life beings that sort of are able to defend against it and they pop up when they're needed and then, mm-hmm. you know, leave when they're not. Uh but I didn't know if, if, and maybe like, we don't want to have any spoilers. So like, sure, feel free to be coy. But if, if there's not a, uh, you know, connection, I was just curious if, there, if you knew one way or the other, or if there was something deeper that we should be sort of connecting between the two stories, other than just sort of the reference of, oh, this has happened before. Yeah, I, I don't think there's ever any explicit connection. I um, I remember having the same thought watching the episodes as they were coming out, thinking like, oh, that's interesting that they kind of reused that element. Um, and, uh, you know, was sort of wondering whether that was going to end up being significant or not. I don't think it's ever really explicitly um, made again. Hold on one second. My cat... <laughs> I have a ladybug issue. I keep finding ladybugs in my house and oh, my yeah. cat is right now stalking a ladybug and she's about to like fall off of the desk. So I'm just going to move her. Um, okay. So I keep finding these ladybugs. I don't know how they're getting in here, but um, anyway, uh, what was I saying? So yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, again, as far as I know, I mean, I suppose they could always come back later and, you know, decide that there was some sort of link that we don't know about yet. I don't think it's significant. I mean, we're down to the last couple episodes of the season. I don't think that that connection is significant for okay. for, for this, this uh, 
for the, for the season kind of plot or anything. I couldn't think of any significance between the two just from yeah. what I knew. And I didn't know if maybe I just missed something, but um, right. it was just curious. Um, I, yeah, I, wanted... I mean, other than I, I mean, I would suspect it was the sort of thing of two writers came up with similar ideas. And so they decided to sort of make reference and connect them to like, oh, we can kind of set something up and use that motif sure. later on. So we might as, since we have two similar themes, we might as well sort of make reference to it. Um, yeah. But I don't think there's any sort of like sinister plot to use solar flares against the planets or anything like that. Um, right. I did want to bring up um, something you mentioned about the title. Um, was that like in the forest of the night is kind of an odd title considering the episode never really takes place at night. Um, and I mean, I think there's kind of some maybe pros and cons, like on the one hand, I don't know that this episode in some ways lives up to that title, you know, it's maybe yeah. not as spooky as you would like it to be. Um, or as I would like it to be, but, um, the one thing the title does have going for it is that in the forest of the night, is seems to explicitly be the the uh reference to the tiger poem by William Blake. So mm. it's tiger tiger burning bright in the forest of the night. Um and gotcha. so and you have the tiger kind of wandering around and so and and you know that comes from uh Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience which is mm -hmm. sort of all about childhood and adulthood and rather than it you know, his kind of whole mythology being instead of about the fall and redemption or about, you know, original sin, it's more about just growing up and you go from innocence to experience and that you, yeah. you know, you, it, it, you don't fall into sin. You just sort of, you know, become a little bit wiser as you grow older. Um, and, and so I think it's maybe sort of invoking some of those themes, which is, you know, sure, which you do get, I think, with the title, which you wouldn't if they changed it. So, yeah. Oh, well, and that's interesting because um, in the next episode, we're going to talk about an angel. I was definitely going to bring up the, um, the the little sort of rhyme that Drusilla talks about, which mm. is, uh, you know, run and catch, run and catch. The lamb is caught in the blackberry patch. And, there was our title and, and didn't, yeah and the uh well and yeah. the interesting thing about that if i now it's been a while since i've read blake but if i remember uh before the tiger comes the lamb right yeah uh, and yeah and, that's the, the there's all the <laughs> flip sides like that's the innocent animal which is right. weird by the I guess experienced, right? Cynical, dangerous animal, um, uh, and so which, and, which anyway. is a lovely parallel because the angel episode is so dark and cynical, you know, and this one is very much more hopeful and you sure. know, like Maeve's whole thesis of this episode is fear less, trust more, <laughs> right? Which is not necessarily true in the angel that's, world, and and that's not something maybe an experienced person says. <laughs> right. Right. No, that's very much the, the voice of innocence speaking there. The, um, well, so I find this episode interesting because there are parts that I really like. And then some parts that I'm just like, eh, you know, yeah. 
yeah. whatever. Um, they can, you know, whether there's a connection to Carabraxis or not, like, I don't necessarily have a problem with like reusing the solar flare. I mean, you know, given how many Doctor Who episodes there are, you're just going to have, uh, you know, certain plot elements reused again, and that's fine. Um, sure. The one piece of that that I kind of was like, and this this is maybe going back to my like early uh, criticisms of like mm-hmm. the science of mm-hmm. Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I buy the whole explanation of like, there being extra oxygen in the atmosphere to burn off because like oxygen burns. So like having more oxygen would seem to exacerbate any, uh, right. You know, potential, like that's how you feed a fire. Right. Right. So I don't, I don't know if that explanation quite works for me, Mm -hmm. um, or scientifically in any way. Um, yeah. And you know, uh, like it's also, on the flip side of that, you know, recognizing that it's like not actually a real forest. It's like these creatures that sort of promoted the growth of this forest that kind of right. comprise it or whatever. Um, right. So it's, you know, okay, that's fine. Um, I do like, 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 so, okay, so saying sort of those, from sort of that scientific standpoint, like, maybe mm-hmm. not the strongest explanation, but what yeah. I do like, um, and what I thought, I was thinking more of in relation to the title was um, the idea of the forest, um, you know, sort of being in the memory, like, the early uh, dawn memory of mankind as, mm-hmm. like, there being danger associated with the forest, but as it turns out, the forest actually was protecting us. And it that made me think of, and I, I think you've read as well. Um, and I know, you know, that I've read it and you gave me the book of, um, <laughs> from the forest by Sarah oh, yeah, Maitland, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um, which, you know, talks about that, that very sort of thing that yes, you know, the forest is dangerous and yes, it's where we get a lot of our fairy tales and that sort of thing. And of course you can't, help but think of little red riding hood when you see Maeve, yeah. you know, sort of for the first time in this story. Yeah. Um you know, but she talks about, you know, of course the forest is dangerous and whatever, but also that the forest, you know, when you go back in time and and think about humans, you know, relating to the forest, that it was also a source of sustenance and life and and that it's not just dark and dreary, but it's also mm-hmm. protective and provides food and, you know, shelter and that sort of thing too. So they're, you know, both of those things are true. It's not one or the other. And so, um, I thought, I thought that it was an interesting idea, even if I didn't entirely like the way that it was sort of plotted out in a practical way. I like the idea of, you know, that people, that people have these stories that are sort of built around the forest as a scary thing, but that it's actually sort of a conflation that the fear came from something else and that it was the forest that was actually the protector. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, but then, you know, people sort of forget and ideas get confused. And so all we remember is that like forest is dark and scary and not, and we don't remember the real reason behind why we had that fear in the first place. Yeah. Well, and that's innocence and experience, isn't it? Of like, it, it 
it's not one or the other. It's not one is good and the other is bad. It's that it's sure. that kind of that progression in that journey. You know, it's um you know, it's proper to be innocent when you're young and it's proper to be experienced as you grow. You know, you don't want to stagnate in innocence, but you know, you know, it it, it it's not necessarily a, a you know, all pure when you're young and all evil when you're grown up. It's that sort of the forest is both the protector and the source of the fear at the same time, which I think goes very much with the kind of fairy tale theme. Um, like, you know, yeah, the forest is where all the scary stuff happens, but that's also how you get to the good stuff is by going through it. You know, like you, you, you don't get to the you catastrophe if you don't go through the kind of dark time yeah. leading well, up to it. And right. that's how you, you have to, you know, that's the process of growing up is right. that progression. And that, and right. And that it's actually impossible <laughs> to have you catastrophe without, like you can't have the happy turn unless yeah. you have, the, the you know, the, the you you're turning away and, from something. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, um, and that, um, that reminds me of, of, I think one of my favorite, um, lines from the episode is actually right at the end where the doctor's talking about the, you know, the power of forgetting and how that that's like a kind of self-preserving superpower for good and for bad. You know, he says, if you, right. if you remember how the things felt, you'd stopped having wars and you'd have, you'd have stopped having babies, you know, so that idea of like, there's a, the, the dark side of, you know, you forget what war can do. And so you keep perpetuating that cycle, but, you know, fear of difficulty and pain would also keep you from a lot of really good, positive things as well. You know, it's good that you move on from the difficulty of childbirth, you know, um, so that you can go and have more babies. So there's that kind of, again, both the positive and the negative sides yeah. to it yeah absolutely um and i'm i'm kind of with you like i i overall like this episode this one is tends to get a pretty bad rap i think for the reasons you said um you know the kind of you know even more than usual impossibility of of it all you know i i think i tend to give I mean, I'm probably more forgiving about those things anyway, but I think I tend to give credit a little bit extra credit for if it has nice ideas, you know, um, if it's actually sure. trying to do something, it has something to say, it's a little bit ambitious, you know, it's kind of risky. I prefer that. I'd rather it kind of reach higher and fail than kind of do a like, well, it's a mediocre, but it's pretty much like every other episode. Um, so I... I I'll sort of defend it on those kind of nice ideas that it has, even if like the plot is a little bit silly. Um, sure. And, and Moffat has kind of come out as a defender. Um, I have a quote of like, yeah, you know, this one kind of gets put in the, the bottom episodes, but again, a lot of times we like some of the bottom episodes, so that's not the end of the world, but um, Moffat, said you know 
he kind of came to the defense and said this was one of his favorites of the season and he thinks it'll the reputation will grow as people have some time to sort of you know forgive it for the that initial like oh that could never happen and all that kind of you know grumbling that right as opposed to all the things in doctor who that can happen exactly um (laughs) which is kind of and i'm not saying that but that's i think i think the implausibility is a problem when it throws you out of the story you know so i'm certainly not saying that you can never criticize an episode for having implausible plot ideas you know um or that there's no way to balance those things but also i do think you have to remember you know doctor who is never ever you know embracing a hard science plausible you know this is like you know physics as we know it um that's not the case in any episode so it's much more the you know arthur clark you know any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic type of thing that and you know i i do think it tends to get a harder time with that particular subset when it's not just that the science is, you know, completely ridiculous. It's when it kind of overtly embraces the kind of fantasy fantasy aesthetic, I think, is when it really gets a hard time, you know? Um, I mean, you know, is it, it kind more of, or less realistic than the moon being an egg? Well, people didn't like that either, so. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, but, yeah, I mean. Right. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah, basically. I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily less realistic than the inside is bigger than the outside. Um, but, you know, because you can kind of get into pseudo-realistic theories of other dimensions, you know, sure. that gets a free pass. You know, we don't have to call that sort of magic because we can talk about, you know, I don't know, other worlds and, you know, space time and how all that works, you know, but I don't know that I find that more believable in a realistic world sense than I do of like, you know, a forest growing really quickly. Um, and. I'm, and obviously, like, I tend to be a little more maybe the other way uh, with regard to the science stuff. But, I mean, even, like, this certainly, did, like, this didn't even bother me. And, you know, who knows, maybe if I went back and watched, you know, uh, what what episode was it, like, the Satan Pit or whatever oh, with, the, like, the, the big the black, black hole, hole and stuff right. there. Uh, you know, like, maybe I would be less bothered by it now that I've had more exposure, you know, to Doctor Who and sort of what they're doing. Um, But like, even, even like with this sort of thing, it's, you know, the idea that there might be beings out there that are much older than us and are maybe attuned differently to the universe and that, you know, kind of come and go and we don't remember them for whatever reason, you know, because of some psychological block or whatever that the doctor sort of explains that we end up having after the fact, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's one of those things of like, okay, you just, you can't prove one way or the other that that's the right. case. Like it's right. You know, from a story perspective, that's 
See, you know, and I, I think that proves my point because, you know, the Satan pit, that gets a pass again too. You know, apparently the black hole wonky science is fine because the episode embraces the hard sci-fi aesthetic. It's gritty. It's in a base. You know, it's like you have the base under siege thing. It's, um, you know, a science team and they're observing things and experiments and like, it feels like it's trying to do sci-fi. Whereas, you know, the science isn't necessarily any better than in this episode, but because this one sort of says openly, okay, this is children's literature. It's, you know, we're invoking poetry and romanticism and fairy tales, you know, then, you know, suddenly everybody's got their knickers in a twist. So I don't know. It it seems like a double standard to me. And like, you know, and which is fine if that's not your thing. And I guess if that's not the type of show you want Doctor Who to be, I just think the science hasn't really changed. It's just, you know, um, what kind of tone is the show going for, I guess. Um, sure. So, and I think there's a little bit of a, prejudice against those types of which yeah, again I don't, I don't think I don't think that's your criticism because you're more you had a problem with the Satan pit you're more talking about what we actually you know like we actually know something about black holes so to kind of rewrite the way they work again throws you out of the story and kind right. of uh interrupts your enjoyment of it a little bit and uh, well and I think it, they it was such a bigger portion of what was going on in that story like because it was like such a slow like you always have this you know black hole sort of there sucking things in Um, whereas this is just like oh there's a solar flare and it's coming (laughs) oh there it is hey let's watch it for a few seconds and we're done like it's gone yeah um but i think in that regard like i think you're right the science of the solar flare is no better than the science of the black hole in that, you know, uh, you know, in that episode. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with you there. Um, so we get this forest, we get, you know, we find out like that there are these creatures that sort of created it. We are the green shoots that grow between the cracks, um, which is, I, you know, immediately it took me a second because I was thinking of like, the cracks in time and i'm like oh wait are we going Mm. back to that again um but then i really like but then you know i realized oh they're talking about like literally that grows between like sidewalk right sidewalks right that sort of thing grass that grows over the mass graves and um you know again that you know that just kind of uh again going back to the idea of like this you know this forest like it's it's not supernatural in the way of like, you know, superheroes or something, but it's like more natural than we're used to because it, right. it is the thing that, that over time that, yeah, like the concrete edifices that we've created are all going to crumble and fall to the ground, like mm-hmm. eventually. And it's, what is it that's going to be? There's actually, so um, the building uh, across from where I work. I, so the, where I work, I used to be on the fifth floor and there was a balcony out there. And the summertime we would go out and like with our laptops and work on the balcony and we could look across and the building across the way, there's a little ledge. And somehow at some point, maybe a 
bird went up there and dropped a seed or something. But there's now a tree that's probably a good 10, 15 feet growing out of the crack in the ledge in this building, nice. like across the alley from where it is. And I, I, every time I see it, I think like, you know, at what point does that become a problem? Like at some point the roots are going to get deep enough that it's going to yeah. like, like it's already, the roots have already got to be in the like cracks of the walls and stuff mm -hmm. and like, you know, growing into it. And at some point that tree's just going <clears> to <throat> get, you know, big yeah. enough and it's going to like topple over or pull the wall down or something. But, right. um, you know, just thinking about that idea of like the most illogical place, this ledge of a, you know, concrete ledge of a building, not even like, you know, the ledge of a cliff or, you know, some sort of natural face, you know, wall, but of just this building and yet a tree found a way to grow there. And it's, it's pretty crazy when you think about it. And, but that's the way of it. Like when things don't, you know, unless you're constantly, you know, building new construction, which, you mm -hmm. know, sure happens, but unless you're doing that, like kind of quickly, like just in a few years, uh, you know, a parking lot can sort of get, uh you know have things start growing up through the you know asphalt or whatever and and sort of yeah. become crumbled and and uh you know pretty quickly things can get you know we say run down but sort of looking at it this way it's you know new life is sort of growing despite you know the fact that it's been paved over or whatever yeah um and and it's sort of the opposite of that uh you know they paved paradise song, you right, know, right. It, it's like, yes, they paved paradise, but eventually given world enough in time, paradise yeah. will return and take over right. again. And um, so there is a sort of interesting, now, of course, this is, this happens overnight in this story. And so mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're sort of the juxtaposition there is being thrust into a world where we're not used to seeing that level of uh wilderness you know um, and certainly not immediately outside our front doors right uh so you know um that's all well and good i don't know like like we and, and we get some so you know we get the uh you know like use of the defoliation uh, techniques, you know, that they attempt to burn it and it, you know, the trees won't burn. And mm. um, apparently they're going to try to use some other chemicals and then they send, you know, the kids send out a message to not do that. Right. Um, and, you know, some of that stuff. But um, beyond sort of that situation, I don't, is there anything else from sort of like the forest standpoint um, that you um, had? I don't think so no um no i think we so um it pretty well so but let's talk about then where we find sort of the people as they find themselves in the situation so we have <laughs> um we have uh well we have we first see mave right mm -hmm. sort of running through the woods um and again with that you know with her red jacket on we get the sort of little red riding hood yeah motif going there um and and of course then later of course you get the big bad wolves who chase her mm -hmm. uh a yeah. bit um 
and she runs and is trying to find the doctor. Um, or so we hear later, uh, which she does. She finds the doctor and um, gets sort of introduced to him. And she becomes sort of the conduit, I guess, between the forest and, and the rest of them. Um, yeah. So I'm not quite sure how, how to read that. Like, is this just like, is she unique? Like, because apparently, you know, before uh, this is something that's been happening for a little while, right? Because she had mm -hmm. her sister who disappeared or was kidnapped or died or something. I don't remember exactly what I, happened. Th they just say disappeared. Okay. It's not quite clear if she ran away or what happened. Um, I, I, they say missing. So I don't think that she died. Um, or at least we don't know that she At died. least we don't know that for sure. Right. Um, yeah. Um, I think my kind of understanding of it was that the doctor has a line about when you lose someone, you're more sort of hyper aware that you're like, so she's missing her sister and she's looking for her everywhere. So she's got this sort of hyper vigilance going on, which sort of makes her, I suppose, like maybe that's why the, you know, spirits or whatever they are sort of picked her as their sort of conduit for that. So maybe unique because of her situation, not necessarily because she has, you know, a supernatural ability right. or anything. And um, I mean, so it could be possibly something. Possibly there are we've others learned, in the world who have a similar. I would, I would think so. And I, I mean, we've also met characters who the doctor says like have some sort of, you know, uh, psychic or telepathic ability. I could see her being someone like that, like who is sort of naturally receptive to these sorts of things. Right. Um, and maybe, maybe heightened because of the experience that she's been through. Um, but yeah, so she's been having these, the thoughts that come to her and she says them like thoughts, which makes me smile every time <laughs> her, little, her little accent cracks me up yeah um, and um right and so it's unclear like she seems to not quite be able to distinguish between what are her own thoughts right and what are these thoughts of other people so it's um and i like sort of in the beginning when she keeps saying like oh well i thought this but i i just thought that was the way it was so i didn't say right. anything and right and well because we've all been there you know you like I'll make it more embarrassing if I admit that I don't understand something. So I'm just going to, mm -hmm. you know, right. act like it's natural until someone kind of says like, don't you find this odd at all? Right. Um, which is sort of the natural. I like how the kids are like, that's sort of the natural state for the, for the kids is like, we just assume that everybody knows more than we do. So we just don't make it like, we're not actually that surprised because, you know, of course you all understand why it's bigger on the inside, you know. Why would that surprise us that we don't understand something? Right. Um I wanted and, to point out about Maeve too. Um her name is kind of interesting. Um Maeve is a an Irish goddess um from their mythology and she's associated with fairies, you know, so like mm. they're kind of mythological figures you know 
in their sort of high mythology kind of sort of become they evolve or devolve into the she you know who are the the celtic fairies so um there's a sort of you know other world fairy connection there in her name and arden of course being you know an ancient forest um in england you know and as you like it takes place in the forest of arden um sure so uh i like her name is very interesting uh given the episode um, um, anyway. Right. So she and the doctor, well, she finds the doctor and goes into the TARDIS and, um, we find out that she, uh, was supposed to be with Danny Pink. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, so where is Danny? Well, he and Clara, uh, apparently took the, uh, a, a, some of their students to, a sort of night at the museum right. uh, overnight thing, um, which, you know, um, you know, I guess they had their night and uh, are ready to go home when they discover the forest thing here going on too. Um, and I like, so we, so this is the um, gifted and talented right. uh, students, which you know, certainly has that ring of like special. These are the special right. students. Right. And, right. Um, you know, we even <laughs> sort of get Clara's uh, explanation later of, you know, they're not really gifted and talented. We just tell them that. Um, yeah, to make them feel good. Yeah, to make them feel um, good. Uh, but Well, I, and you get like, I like how that works with this ongoing lying theme of Clara's. Like, you know, her kind of tell people what they want to hear to make them feel the way that they should feel rather than the explicit truth, you know? And that even goes back to um, when she kind of is yelling at the doctor with Courtney saying, you know, tell her she's special. Come on. Like, even if it's not true, just tell her that because otherwise she'll feel terrible. Um, And you have a responsibility as this, you know, uh, really, uh, you know, authority figure to tell this impressionable, impressionable young person that they're special or gifted and talented or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I like how, you know, we get sort of the manifestation of their <laughs> gifts and talents uh, in some of the children. So we have Ruby, who um, we learn doesn't have an imagination. You can ask Miss right. Oswald. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I really like Ruby. Like I get a kick out of that. That girl um, and and um, and her thing of find X. It's right there. Right. You know? Well, but and like, that that kind of that goes along with the not having an imagination, right? Like she, right. it's not just an imagination of like you know you might think of like a children ha- you know imagining you know a story or something, but. Like, she also just doesn't get, like, abstract concepts. She right. is very literal and just yeah. sort of says what comes to her mind uh, in that way. Right. Uh, but, like, along with that goes a kind of, a kind of, another kind of intelligence of, like, a kind of a quick wit, you know, of, you know, there's something kind of, to be that much of a smart aleck, you have to be a little bit smart, you know? Um, sure. There's the kind of thing of why are you asking me all the questions? You know, you're the teacher. Go ask somebody else. So, um, you know, there's the kind of she may not be an abstract thinker, but there's a kind of practicality to it, which is 
Yeah, you know? and it's almost like... Like, I, mean, I, I kind of imagine that that's what Donna would have been like as a kid. I don't know. Like, well, I, I was more of say, that kind of blunt, straight shooting kind of... I was going to say almost, almost more like, you know, the Shakespearean fool, which yeah, isn't foolish yeah. in, like, a stupid way, but is, like, in in sort of her her you know being like she's almost like playing up like she doesn't know the answer she doesn't know right. the answer to x but like the way that she's going to get out of answering it is to be so exasperating that right. they just get tired of asking her to do it anymore and right so that's right. a different sort of cleverness than it is you know she's and not able to do the math but she's able to get out of doing the math and so exactly um, well and and with that with you bring up the full like you know, making, forcing you to question assumptions you may have made about, you know, something as simple as the question, where do we, how do we find X? You know, you know what you mean by that, but, right. you know, you know, a literal thinker will make you understand the vagaries in your own language that are you really being as clear as you should have been in what you're asking? Right. Um, or Especially at least it makes for you, someone who's a teacher. Yeah, it makes you kind of think about how do I actually communicate and state these questions and everything. So it sort of like keeps you honest a little bit. Um, um, and then we, and then you have Bradley who uh, has some anger issues and uh, apparently does, never says please and looks for other ways to get what he wants. Um, but he uh, sort of forgets that in in the forest when they're you know doing their adventuring Uh, but when he gets stressed he forgets his anger management (laughs) Uh, i mean again there's that thing of he's maybe repeating what he's been told right you know like in some therapy session or other they've said you know don't you know you need when you're in stressful situations you need to calm down and i like the way he says that as like I'm just forewarning you, you know, I'm stressed right now. And when I'm stressed, I forget my right. anger management. So I can remember I, that I forget my anger management. I but may I can't or may not be responsible for anything yeah. I'm about to do. Right. Um, yeah. Um, so that's all. I mean, that's all fun. And I think, um, but I think the, you know, the key to having the kids here, um, in addition to sort of, uh, you know, prompting the doctor and Clara and Danny to sort of think about what they're doing and have whatever. Mm-hmm. But it is it is really to see sort of the, you know, we get the highlight um, in particular of Danny's character here. Of, yeah. <laughs> you know how how he takes care of the kids and and granted, you know, he does it in sort of a military esque way. You know mm-hmm. with. Like, okay, you know, team, like he keeps calling the kids a team and they start to get annoyed by that. But yeah. but also, even though they start to get annoyed by it, like they respond to it as well. Like they yeah. they do act as a team and, and he's sort of, you know, uh, bringing them together, one, so that they don't like fight and whatever, but also it's a way to get their minds off of sort of what the scariness is of you know this forest and this weird thing and so it it kind of even like you were saying before like you get the kids who are like 
well, you just seem to know what's going on. So I'm going to pretend that I know what's going on too. Right. And, and in that way, even though Danny doesn't have any more of a clue about what's going on either, he takes their mind off it and is like, okay, well, we may not know what's going on, but we can figure out how to go a certain direction and we can get from point A to point B and, you know, Hey, you know, kid, you can be navigator for a while and, yeah. You know, we'll we'll sort of tackle it one point at a time. And and so you mentioned, you know, like sort of Clara's lying and I you know, I don't know that Danny lies per se, mm-hmm. but he does sort of use trickery, you know, mm-hmm. in that way, or at least like sort of psychological, you know, tricks to yeah. to sort of, you know, take the kids minds off it they're not really a team in any meaningful sense this is just a group of kids who went on an overnight at a museum together yeah um but by sort of acting like they're a team and sort of getting them to think about their situation in a way that's not you know sort of freaked out and uh uh you know paralyzing that you know, he kind of keeps things together for the most mm-hmm. part and keeps the kids, you know, sort of from what otherwise otherwise might be just sort of panicked, you know, scrambling about <laughs> um, and that sort of thing. And and you have to kind of wonder, like, had it been Clara, like, you know, I think Clara is very capable and, you know, uh, able to do things, but I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I could see her keeping the kids sort of together in the same way that Danny does. Um, mm-hmm. She did fine as the doctor when, you know, um, she was sort of facing the Flatlanders and had to like coalesce right. a team of adults. But right. I don't know if I see her being able to do that same sort of thing with the kids in the same way. Um, especially since she seems so much more interested in just like, being with the doctor and being the companion, you know, like she, she isn't, I, I, I'm trying to be careful about how I word this. I think she cares about the kids and would certainly do what she could to keep them safe and everything. Like, I don't, I like, we've certainly seen enough of her (coughs) with children, uh, you know, to believe that, but I don't, I don't know that she would be successful in the way that Danny is with, um, yeah. you know, sort of keeping the children preoccupi- preoccupied and working together in quite the same way. Like, I feel like there would be more problems if she <laughs> were to, right, you know, be handling it sort of on her own. That's yeah. just a sense. I don't have any, like, yeah. uh, uh, objective sort of, you know, data to back any of that up. It's just sort of a sense that I have. Yeah, um, a couple things there. Um, I do think you're right in that there's, you know, maybe Danny doesn't outright lie, but there's a similarity there to how he keeps the group sort of focused and motivated to what we've talked about before of kind of doctorish behavior of, Mm -hmm. you know, fake it till you make it, you know, call yourself a team until you act like one, you know, Clara's thing of lie to them, give them hope, you know, um, 
tell them they're going to be all right and then they'll run faster. So, you know, that kind of thing of, you know, maybe at the most it's lying by omission since they never actually tell the kids like the real danger that they're in or they, you know, keep their minds off of how scared they might feel. But it's it's not quite the same thing, but it's in the same ballpark, I think, you know. Um, so. Well, yeah. And even like when the doctor later is like, oh, you know, there's this big flare coming and blah, blah, blah. And it's like everyone looks right. at him and it's like, like your teachers didn't tell you this. Like, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, no. So uh, I, mean, I thought it would spoil an otherwise nice walk. <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely that aspect of, yeah, like you said, like it might not technically be lying, but there's definitely some missing information going on here. Which, yeah. which of course, you know, what, what I was sort of leading up to with all of this is then how much room does Danny have to call Claire a liar, basically, sure. you know, at the end. And again, which I think is, I think is mitigated by the fact that they don't, he catches her in the lies and they have a confrontation, but they don't have a big um, he doesn't sort of do the, I made an ultimatum and you violated it. And now we're like, you know, I'm not saying that it's as conscious as him saying, well, now I understand what it is to be the doctor. And so I'm going to forgive you. Like, I don't think it's that coherent in, in his thought process, but like, there is some kind of mutual understanding. I think that they, you know, they don't split over that discovery they sort of you know potentially get a little bit you know on each other's cases but then sort of Danny seems to sort of forgive her for that and maybe part of it is because like he does understand like you know you don't always do the right thing or say the full truth when you're trying to sort of deal with a situation um I don't know. Well, so, <clears throat> so where I was going, like what I was saying is, you know, with Danny, not, um, you know, again, I don't, I don't know that he comes out and lies in the same way that sort of Clara does, but, uh, you know, there definitely is some deceit. Now, you know, I'm sure he would say, yeah, you know, oh, it was, yeah, like you said, like it was, I was trying not to spoil a nice walk. Like, you know, there was no necessary, necessarily a reason for, yeah, you know, scaring the children or making them think they would never see their parents again or anything like that. Uh, but again, like, how far off from the doctor is that really? Right. Like, how far, well, and, and, and how and, far off from Clara is that? And so... When we, you know, again, like, I I agree with you that Danny doesn't necessarily, like, you know, come down hard on Claire. And, like, he's not, like, taking a firm stance of, like, stop lying or I'm leaving you or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, we don't, like, we don't get a clear sense of, like, you know, what exactly he's thinking there. But... You know, he he does say, "I don't I don't care what the truth is. I just want you to tell me." But at the same time, 
it is worth at least recognizing that he he's not telling the whole truth to the children. Now, that's not to say that he's lying to Clara about anything. I mean, I don't know even what he might be lying to her about. Um, But we also know that, like, he's been very reticent to talk about his past Mm -hmm. and as a soldier and, you know, that sort of thing, too. So, you know, again, like, you know, he might want Clara to be telling, uh, you know, the truth about things and, and saying, you know, I don't care what the truth is. But there's also that sense of, well, you know, he he has truths that he hasn't been telling too. So mm-hmm. uh, anyway, I don't, I do, I feel like I'm, yeah. maybe I'm making a bigger point out of this than even we necessarily need to. Um, but I did just want to sort of make sure we drew that, that yeah. line that there is, there is more of a similarity there than, than yeah. not. <laughs> and, you know, I think it was in the last one where Clara also said, you know, how, is it really a lie if it's for their own good? You know, like when, when do white lies, you know, become, you know, uh, less white. Um, so, Soiled. <laughs> yeah. So I, you could kind of see him saying, you know, if you said to him, well, you're lying to the kids, you're not telling them what's going on. Uh, you know, you could kind of see him saying, well, that's for their own good, you know, um, you know, not that he would say that, but I think that's the kind of, that's the, the argument or potentially the slippery slope there. Um, and it's definitely easier to judge others than it is to sort of, you know, uh, stay out of that situation yourself, I think. Yeah. Um, um, I think the other thing about Danny, too, is that we get sort of a doubling down on his um, contentment. Maybe I don't know if that's mm-hmm. quite the right word, but his his lack of desire to go sort of sightseeing and adventuring. Yeah. Um, you know, he he says, "I don't want to see more things. I want to see the things in front of me more clearly." Which is, you know, that's a perfectly fine attitude. But I also feel like that's uh, that's not what Clara wants, right? Clara mm-hmm. wants the broad spectrum survey of mm-hmm everything she possibly can. And if that means, you know, she doesn't necessarily ever understand one thing completely, she's okay with that. She's, she'd much rather see, you know, some aliens in one galaxy and then a supernova in another, and then, you know, a solar flare in a third, you know, and, and those are all new and exciting experiences where Danny seems more of the personality of, you know, sort of more like the specialized scholar who's, who's, uh, you know, willing to sort of devote the entire life to some, uh, you know, sort of more minute study, uh, in depth. Um, and, you know, I think that's, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily like to paint with these broad strokes either, but like, you also get sort of like the, this difference between sort of like an extrovert and an introvert maybe mm-hmm. um, in that sort of personality of like, you know, the person who likes to go out and be out and experience things, you know, like, and, mm-hmm. you know, want to be always sort of trying out new things versus, you know, the person who's sort of like, okay with 
being at home and you know not uh not necessarily needing yeah. to go find the the newest latest exciting thing but is perfectly fine with a book and you know a few good friends who are uh mm-hmm. you know who who they understand really well you know versus sort of maybe the tons of acquaintances that you don't necessarily ever get to know real deeply right well and to go with that too the for the introvert extrovert thing that the the thing that always made the most sense to me was when they say you know the difference is really um where do you get your energy you know is it out being out among people and things and doing things or is it you know if that's not energizing then it's draining and you need to have the time in alone to sort of recharge and process and everything and everyone finds you know maybe you're somewhere on a spectrum but you find one of these things energizing and one of these things draining and I think that does kind of make sense of you know Danny's thing of there are wonders here like so if we all need wonder you know where do you get your wonder you know is it at home with the mundane and the and the domestic and the minute details and the small things and the kind of everyday life or do you if you're like Clara that's not enough you need to go out and find something new that you haven't seen before and do a new experience um and you know and that to me is a more extroverted i think uh kind of philosophy um and the question to me is sort of to what extent are those things compatible you know there's a kind of opposites attract kind of notion there of okay he's sort of happy to go home at the end whereas she's happy to sort of go off and watch the supernova mm-hmm. um but you know is there is that a kind of thing that they can happily coexist with each other or um would those two things eventually be in conflict? And I think like your point about Clara maybe not doing so well with the kids is kind of a nod towards like, I guess maybe more the progression of the character. Like we've, like you said, she's a caring person. We've seen her as this child raising caretaker Mm -hmm. from the beginning. So it's not that she doesn't care about or know how to take care of kids, but there is more that sense of now that, that, you know, as much as it's great for her to be, you know, as much in love with this lifestyle, there does seem to be a tension there of potentially it's distracting her from the other things that, you know, it's not that she doesn't care about the kids, but she kind of forgets about them in the excitement of, you know, like there's a forest. Who do we call? Not the school, not the parents. We call the doctor, you know, he's the first person we have to tell. Um, And, uh, you know, so, you know, and, and saying the same thing to Danny, like, you know, her trying to figure out the mystery of, okay, did it come overnight or have we been asleep a long time? And this is the priority. And he's like, no, actually taking care of the kids is priority. And it's not that she doesn't agree because you see that she really likes that aspect of Danny, that that is very attractive to her. Um, But 
but it's also not kind of but it's also not it's emphatically not the first thing that she thought of um so yeah i mean there's probably positives and negatives to that like on the one hand you kind of see her expanded worldview um and on the other hand you know she may be losing something in that expansion sure so um Well, any, I mean, we haven't talked much about the doctor. Uh, any, any thoughts on him? I, the main thing I want to kind of just make sure we do before the end with the doctor is that kind of, um, you know, the, the moment with when Clara does tell him to go and she lies again, you know, she says, you know, come on, the TARDIS is a lifeboat. We're going to get these kids out of here. And it's all a trick to get the doctor to go back to the TARDIS, you know, um, because he wouldn't, you know, that that's how you get him to do stuff is to make him think he's saving people. Um, you know, but I, so I like the kind of reversal of that, you know, um, and, you know, and so there's the echo of, before in Kill the Moon when she sort of said accusingly, you know, this is your world too and you can help us when we need it. Um, Hear her saying, you know, this is your world too and we're going to, you know, save you from it. Um, Again, just sort of a nice little echo there. Um, And I really, I like cringe every time the, the line that gets me the hardest is uh you know her saying I don't want to be the last of my kind mm. like I just think that's such a poignant yeah. you know uh you know kind of a nihilistic <laughs> line you know of I'm not gonna you know and I like the way he kind of offers to save all of them and the, just her and Danny and then just her like okay you, you keep blocking me so I'm gonna keep trying for you know at least one person, just like Donna said, just save someone, mm-hmm. even if it's not everyone. And, you know, her thing of, well, no, actually surviving and being the only one would be worse than, you know, dying with the planet, which is kind of a smack in the face. I don't think it's meant as an insult, but it certainly is very indicative of what she thinks of his, you know, quality of life in a way um and at least not that he's done anything wrong but that it's so awful and so painful that she doesn't even want to go there um dying would be better than being Mm -hmm. through what he's been through um yeah so yeah yeah good anyway good good points (laughs) <laughs> that's all uh did you have anything else i didn't for the really doctor that we didn't more cover? For the doctor. i feel like <clears throat> a lot of this episode is more about danny and clara's relationship um yeah with each other than necessarily with the doctor there i mean there's some mm-hmm. overlap you know from previous stuff with you know the danny's finding the homework books and stuff in the TARDIS right, and whatever. Right. But like, 
that all comes out in sort of the other stuff that we already talked about. I don't I don't know that there's a lot more about the doctor to be sort of gleaned from mm-hmm. this episode. So Yeah. Um but I agree that that moment of, you know, this is where the doctor when the doctor says, This is my world too. I walk your earth, I breathe your air and Claire is kinda like, Yeah, you're welcome. Now go. <laughs> like like that's <laughs> yeah. that is kind of like a it, I find that interesting because on the one hand, it's an acknowledgement that like the doctor has saved the earth a lot, but mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily make it his world. Like mm-hmm. as affectionate as he might feel towards it, it's still not his world. His world is already gone. Yeah. And so there is that sense of like, at the end of the day, this is where the humans get to die, not you. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Which is is interesting. I don't know how far to take that per se, but um, anyway. yeah. Before we move on to Angel, though, uh, we do need to also just mention that we do get one more sighting of Missy uh, at yes. the near the end, um, uh, saying, "Now that was surprising, and I love surprises." Um, and I'm curious as to what the surprise actually is. Um, mm. There's a couple things that it could be. It could be just sort of the situation in itself, like the the flare, uh, you know, happening and, you know, sort of the whatever they are creatures that save it. Um but there's also like it it also could be uh you know it also could be referencing like what the doctor and and Clara are sort of mm-hmm. doing because um you know it uh the doctor i think right before that is where the doctor says that like it would be slightly awkward if the world was destroyed at this point. Like, like I could be wrong. Like I could be wrong at this, at this point. Um, yeah. And yeah, fingers crossed. And then the, you know, and then like everything's okay. And the doctor sort of makes another little comment. And then Missy's like, now that was surprising. And I love surprises. So it's like, okay, is it like, is she talking about the situation as surprising and sort of how it resolved itself? Is it surprising how sort of how the doctor is acting and thinking and talking is it surprising mm-hmm. because we also got in the last episode her sort of praise of clara so is are we supposed to be looking at like clara and the fact that like she went off with the doctor while danny was like you know mm-hmm. back taking the kids home or whatever he was doing at that point like so right. there are a couple different ways that you could take that i guess um but you know I, I don't know, and I don't necessarily expect you to say anything, but was just uh, yeah, just at least wanted to sort of notice or note that uh, before we moved on. Okay, cool. Anyway, having said that, we can move on. All right. Well, totally switching tones. Mm. Um, we're going off into Angel. And a quite a dark episode of Angel. Yeah. Um, 
So I want to start with Drusilla and Darla because they're the ones who are sort of reunited in this reunion episode. Um, And so, and they kind of spend a fair amount of time together. Um, So, you know, following off from uh, Drew biting uh, Darla, which we saw last time, we kind of have her um, arranging this whole uh, birth slash rebirth ceremony. And I, I think that's kind of um, kind of interesting how they're able to sort of piece together the location by what they know of Drew, you know, because apparently... Because she's so Angel, weird. She's, yeah, like... She's so... Well, and... But but it's it's random, but in a way that like... It, or it's it's obscure, but there's a pattern to it. Like it, it's kind of poetic logic, but there is a logic there that sure. you know they're able to figure out. Angel says she's a she's a classicist. Like she can't just have her wake up like on your sofa. Like it has to be like no, there has to be a burial and an actual physical, you know rebirth right. and you know resurrection as well as with the like physical transformation and everything. right he he comments um, about how she would like the ritual of it right and that yeah yeah right. um but like so then they're able to kind of do the like okay put the puzzle pieces together like you know it, it they won't have time to like bury her in a grave so they just need some dirt okay where can we find dirt and they know you know uh she said something to the landlady about wanting to see the stars. So that kind of points you in a certain direction. You have to go, you know, so far away from the city before you can see the lights and all these sorts of things. Um, So that's kind of interesting for Drusilla that it's not totally, which I think we've known, like she speaks nonsense, but it's because she has this kind of, adult brain but also like this intuitive understanding of things that her nonsense isn't total nonsense it may not make sense to us but she sees sense in things um and just doesn't know how to express it so um and i i guess kind of on that note too i like um you know her saying grandmother's very pleased with it aren't you grandmother my daughter and like saying she knows what darla's thinking and Lindsay says can you hear her and she goes she's dead like (laughs) of course i can't hear her you moron like so you know to her she has this intuitive understanding of what grandmother wants and what she would like but Lindsay's clearly an idiot if he thinks she can actually hear her, you know, because she's dead, obviously. That that um, moment always reminds me or makes me think of um the movie Serenity when um uh-huh. when Simon uh when when they have like River sort of uh chained up in in the hold in the ship and mm-hmm. Simon is like asking her about Miranda and he goes am I talking to Miranda now? And right. and, and she, she like him gives him that, that look of like are you crazy? <laughs> Um, and like, and and you think I'm the crazy one. And and so this, this moment, this obviously came before that, but it has a very similar, 
uh, feel to me. Um, yes. Yeah. Just because these are the, the kind of a slightly insane, you know, uh, intuitive girls doesn't mean that they are completely without logic. Um, you just have to sort of understand how to interpret what they say. Right. And, you know, of course, we know that Angel has traveled with Drusilla, you know, I mean, he yeah. sired her. So, um, you know, he he would know sort of to some degree, uh, even though he hasn't seen her in a while, <laughs> he would certainly know what she sort of how to interpret her, you know, uh, yeah. in a way that no one else does. Um, I love I love the whole you know, uh, grandmother, daughter mm. thing. Um, and, and you get sort of, you get sort of like, <laughs> I like how Gunn is sort of the exposition character who's like yeah. explaining to all the people who are watching Angel but maybe didn't see the early seasons of Buffy, like kind of who, who, Drusilla, who Drusilla is. How this timeline works. And, yeah. you know, working through like the, you know, grandmother, daughter, sire thing. Right. Um uh, and I love that Drusilla keeps calling her Darla grandmother, and Darla just hates it. And yeah. and um, but also yeah. that yeah, she's calling her old. Well, not only that, but that like, um, I mean, one like it's it's not like like who what other vampire calls their sire like father or you know what I mean right, like right. like this is Drusilla clearly getting a kick out of sort of the um you know, uh, paradox of, you know, being sired, well, or in the lineage of Darla, but also giving birth to her. And like, like, of course, it's Drusilla who's going to do this because, you know, yeah. like Angel could have done it and the same paradox would sort of still exist, but it wouldn't be as delightful in the way that it is to Darla or to uh, Drusilla. Yeah in doing it um right and so there might be some more intentional thought behind that than just right, like right you know. and and that almost um, you get the sense that like maybe drusilla got wind of it and sort of came to wolfram on heart to volunteer you know to be that one um right you know who would who would turn her uh it, it reminds me too especially with guns kind of like he's kind of squicked out by like the incesty vibes of it. Um, mm. it, it reminds me of um, Chinatown. Have you seen Chinatown with uh, Jack Nicholson? But I, I almost don't want to say this because it's kind of, <laughs> I'll, it's, it's the big spoiler. Of I mean, movie, I feel so like say it Chinatown way, has been around long like, enough that like any spoilers. It's like 45 yeah. years old by now, people go and see it. But, um, the whole thing with Faye Dunaway at the end of, you know, there's this other woman and she, it's unclear is it her sister or her daughter and Jack Nicholson keeps smacking her. And every time she switches, it's my, she's my sister. She's my daughter. She's my sister. She's my daughter. And then you're kind of like, oh no, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so there's that thing of like, uh, I feel like it's, I don't know whether you know, it's deliberately invoking that, but that kind of thing of there's something about the, you know, granddaughter slash daughter thing, which is just 
creepy. Yeah. Like, yeah. relationships should only ever go in one direction. Right. Um, yeah, the the whole, I'm, familiar I'm my own grandpa and, sort of uh, yeah. idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, so, like, with, with Drew, the other thing, well, sort of on that note, the other thing that I wanted to make sure we um, brought up is is that rhyme that I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Doctor Who. The run and catch, run and catch, the lamb is caught in the blackberry patch. Um, I don't know if you remember, but we've heard this before. Um, mm, I don't remember. We first heard it in Lie to Me, which is uh, season two, episode seven. Remember, that's the one where at the end, Buffy, you know, tells Giles to lie and, and he's like, yes, you know, we're the good guys are always stalwart and true and blah, blah, blah. Um, but anyway. Interesting that that episode is being invoked. In sure, <laughs> sure. Um, and uh, <clears throat> earlier in that episode, um, Drusilla uh, has some nameless victim who's a guy. Um, and she says, my mummy used to sing me to sleep at night, run and catch. The lamb is caught in the blackberry patch. She had the sweetest voice. What will your mummy sing when they find your body? You know, and then like okay. the guy is all freaked out, whatever. Um, but then it come, uh, the, the refrain comes back uh, partially in what's my line part two, which is just a few episodes later um, mm-hmm. where, uh, she she repeats the last part of it. Lamb is caught in a blackberry patch. My mummy my mummy ate lemons raw, and like that's I don't remember even what the context <laughs> is. Like, but you know, it, it's just like one of those again, one of those random things. But the interesting thing, of course, is that um, whenever she uses this line, it's in relation to her mother, her mummy, um, yes. and now now the, which is presumably. Does she mean well, Darla by that? That's the question. Is this I don't is the question. know. Yeah. I don't know if it means Darla. Yeah. Um, she always calls Darla grandmother, so I'm not sure. Right. But in that sense, she also. But she also here, as you sort of noted, calls Darla daughter. So then it's right. you know she's repeating this line. So is this? Does this then mean like this is the sort of thing that? mothers are supposed to say Mummies like do, you know we, yeah. <laughs> we turn um you know by by becoming darla's mummy like does that does that mean that now i get to repeat this rhyme to you and and right. and so you know again it's just sort of an associative thing um but just also the fact that like it's it's this thread sort of running through her yeah. character whenever she's thinking about her own mother and and now herself as a mother it becomes uh you mm-hmm. know sort of this like you know she's going apparently she gone through quite the nesting phase when um <laughs> you know as we get from sort of the landlady who who's like it's funny how she like sort of a smile smiles and is like sort of knowing to Angel like oh it's about that English cousin isn't it the, she was kind of weird right. but you know yeah. was really excited and it's like well first of all why would you think Drusilla was pregnant because she doesn't look pregnant at all <laughs> like you know what- right well she has the line about she said something about her daughter being born and I thought that was. It, it, she's like not healthy because she's so right. skinny. <laughs> like so, she thinks of her as this like emaciated, you know, right. person who's about to give birth. Um, um, or yeah, or just one of yeah. those people who doesn't show until like the last minute, kind of thing. Right, um, right. 
so sort of on that um, line, though, too, uh, there's actually after, um, you know, we I think it, when we were talking about sort of the can the canon and stuff in our hundredth episode, um, mm-hmm. you know, I mentioned some of the um, comic books that that were written after uh, the series, and uh, one of those was a series called Angel and Faith, and then. Um, sort of continuing or a spinoff of that was a five-part comic series called run and catch which focused on drew specifically um so there's also like there it's just that phrase that seems to be um right continue and i've not read i've not read either of those the angel and faith or or the run and catch series but um just that 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 sort of seems to be a, a continuing thread for her of the um you know, run and catch the sort of, you know, you know, the thrill of the hunt, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. But also the idea of the la- the lamb is caught in the blackberry patch that uh, you're not just like running after them, but af- also they get they get caught, they get trapped mm-hmm. by something and that, you know, she's sort of making her slow plotting way, but she can sort of, I don't know, find them no matter where they go, the victims. Right. Well, and to bring it back to the innocence and experience idea that this is the innocent thing that she enjoys hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And, you know, thinking of her And she's more like the the wily tiger in that scenario or... um, Right. You know, she's the predator which hunts the innocent prey. Um, And thinking of her own story, just that she was the innocent one who was taken, you know, uh, by Angel. And Darla. So anyway, right. Um, with uh, so so yes, so there's Drew. So we get her, um, you know, preparing, and we get Angel sort of interrupting the preparations, but not in time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which I. You know, would have been surprised if he was. So I yeah, was, I mean, you know, you were you're kind of waiting Darla, for Darla to yeah was gonna was gonna finish the transfer. I mean, I certainly wasn't expecting her to get bitten. So in that sense, but like, yeah. Uh, but once you knew that happened, once you do, you right. know, here comes um, Vamp Darla, who doesn't at first seem to really distinguish between Angel and Drusilla. She's sort of, you know. Uh, Drew is sort of like, oh, you know, grandmother. And then she like throws her over the table. Like (laughs) she's sort of comes out swinging at anybody and anything and then jumps off the building. Um, And then even later when she goes and uh, gets Drew, you know, specifically goes and like uh, to Wolfram and Hart and, you know, grabs Drew's hand and takes her out. She still wants to like beat her up. Right. Um, like they start and, biting, you know, yeah. right. Which kind of is an interesting, um, you know, I kind of had wondered <clears throat> how much will, you know, the being human affect or not Darla's personality, um, and her memories of, you know, she, it looked like she was starting to sort of accept her humanity and her mortality at the end there. Um, And at least initially there seems to be a little bit of that lingering in that she doesn't immediately embrace 
you know, being a vampire that she sort of seems angry at Drew for bringing her back, you know, and Drew has to kind of say, well, you know, it was all for you. I thought it was what you wanted. And she sort of, you know, relents and comforts her and everything. Um, But at least in those initial moments, there seems to be a little bit of conflict there about, you know, and, and actually as I'm thinking about it later on too, because it's she certainly embraces being a vampire again but her whole kind of motivation behind the massacre of the lawyers in part seems to be revenge for you know what they've put her through and bringing her back at all and all these sorts of things so there's maybe some ambiguity about how she feels about being brought back as a vampire i think yeah well I lo- I love that, you know, uh, scene out in the street where <laughs> Drusilla is like, did I do something to displease you? And Darla's answer right. is to like throw her into the street and like, right, you know, right. uh, fight and stuff. And um, and then we get, like you said, like we get Drew's explanation of, of, you know, I thought it's what you wanted to be saved and which it was, but. You know, I mean, right. like, I, like she was going around trying to get vampires to bite her and was, right, like, right. not successful in doing that. And then, like you said, with Angel, we got, um, you know, we get this moment of where she does really seem to have acceptance. And, you know, and it's funny that this is, I mean, not funny, but sort of coincidental, <laughs> uh, not coincidental, but... um you know, whatever, I can't think of the right word, but um, that both Angel and Drusilla are sort of, like, it's the same thing. We want to save you. And obviously in very different ways. Um, And even at the beginning of this episode, we get Angel sort of moaning, like, I can save her, I can save her. You know, there's still time, it's not too late. And of course, at that point, he's, by saving her, it's, I I can can kill her her before she turns into a vampire. Um, which obviously doesn't work well, but yeah, I mean, ultimately Darla does seem to embrace her rebirth as a vampire and accept Drew's, uh, companionship. Um, they go shopping. Yeah. And, uh, kill the clerks. (laughs) Right. Uh, I like how they say they go on a spree. (laughs) Right. Like, you know, because there's that double entendre there of, you know, a a shopping spree or a killing spree. And they're Um, both equally as enjoyable. Equally delightful. And they kind of walk off like girlfriends, like, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of holding hands and swinging their arms, like kind of, you know, just having a good old romp about town. And... And of all of Darla's sort of uh, weirdness, I love the uh, moment when she thinks that she's ringing. <laughs> I'm yeah. ringing. Uh, all well, over. well, well, yeah. there's this phone. <laughs> and then she's like, oh, I, I forgot yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. D- Drew is good for the moments of weirdness. I always. Uh, enjoy those little yeah uh, I don't know Juliet Landau is really good yeah yeah um, she's great 
she gets a lot of nuance and humor into it um, every time. Uh, um, so they end up, well, and so, I mean, okay, I, we've sort of just talked about the two of them and not so much the relationships with the other people, but of yeah. course there's sort of moments in between all these things with Angel mm-hmm. and the Wolfram and Hart people. Um, yeah. And, you know, they end up at Holland Manor's house uh, being invited in, apparently by his wife, who right. who must have just thought that they were there for the wine tasting. Just like Dinner guests. Yeah, yeah, and right, she's playing the and good hostess. How would she know any? Uh, yeah. They look like two lovely young ladies, so. And, uh, you know, try to kill her. Apparently don't quite kill her. Um, Mm. But uh, wind up in the wine cellar with the Wolfram and Hart people. And so, uh, I don't... And there's the thing of, of, you know, Holland explicitly uninvites Angel, but doesn't uninvite the other two. Um, yeah, and so but there's also like there's there's the level of hubris there too. And, well, that's the thing is like it's it's he's sort of not thinking of them as threats too. Well, not only that, you know, but it's it's, it's, it's the it's, the wolf in your own yard. You he know? knows they're threatening because like it's not even that he just like tells them, oh, you know, I'm having wine tasting, but he calls them. And it's like, oh, you should go on a massacre. And you'll have the full backing of Wolfram and Hart. And obviously, you know, it never occurs to him that they would want to massacre him. Because why wouldn't they? And it's, you know, so there's this, um, you know, he's supposed to be the director of this special projects division and all of this. But, you know, there is that aspect of like... (laughs) his own success has sort of uh, inured him to uh, the dangers that are very real and that, um, you know, uh, he's sort of thinking this of, you know, oh, these are, these are my pets and I feed them. And so they of course wouldn't bite me. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, he's very, very much, uh, has quite a lot of the pride going on and well we see that that doesn't work out so well um but even even with angel like you know angel is like oh so you know you're the one pulling the strings and uh holland's like uh you know a few of them and and he goes on and and sort of even reveals to angel like you know darla's not the project you're the project and like Mm. I don't know. There's there's very much a sense with Holland that like he's gotten to the point where, which is interesting because like how many things have gone wrong for the Wolfram and Hart folks that like <laughs> like why yeah. does he think that he's in such right. a good place? But we get a little bit of that from his you know the beginnings of his speech before he sort of gets cut off, um, which I did want to is sort of what I was leading up to is that I did want to make sure we mention this is that um, he says, now it's no secret that our work is but one small element in a much larger, greater plan, one which the senior partners hope and then, you know, gets cut off because Drew and Darla walk in. Yeah. So 
I just want to sort of make note of that because, you know, we've been getting all of this view from Wolfram and Hart and the scene you know, and, and mentions of the senior partners and stuff, but we haven't actually gotten around to like what, what is sort of the bigger, larger, greater plan. And we don't hear, right. we just sort of get the revelation that there is one and that apparently things are going according to that plan, which is interesting. Mm. So, um, you know, we don't know what that is. We don't know where we're going. We're only 10 episodes into season two, but um, yeah. just want to point out that like, you know, again, it's like a glimpse of like even bigger sorts of things. Like this is just, you know, a small division within a large corporation uh, right. that, that has things going on. And so, um, well, yeah. And, and his, his sort of hubris, hubris is interesting because you do kind of start to wonder how much of his um, whole kind of shtick is like a lot of big talk, mm. you know, like, because there's the moments in this that kind of do hint that he, I mean, obviously by the end, it's revealed how much he is not in control of the situation, yeah. but there are hints of it earlier, like when he's sort of like, you know, Angel found you. Oh, well, that's not unexpected. And it's like, well, if it wasn't unexpected, why were you so surprised? You know, like, he, there's that moment of revealing that, oh, I wasn't expecting this. And then, oh, that was all according to the plan. You know, he just sort of, you know, he likes to look, I think, in front of his, the people underneath him. Like, he knows exactly what's going on, mm -hmm. you know, and that... You can all screw up, but I have this whole thing under control. Um, you know, and like later he says, like, you know, we're not going to worry about Angel anymore. And then Angel like crashes into the room. Like, mm. clearly you still have to worry about Angel. Um, and, you know, he talks his way out of it. But like, I feel like that's a lot of what Holland's doing is talking his way out of it. Um, sure. And like you said, things do keep going wrong. And yet he keeps saying, oh, they haven't really gone wrong. They're all according to the plan. And it's like, I don't know. After a while, that starts to seem like that's the thing you say so that people don't realize how much things are not going according to plan. Um, at least maybe on his level. Now, I don't know what sort of plans the senior partners may have. Maybe, sure. Maybe things are more according to plan upstairs. But... I think Holland at this point is his credibility is deteriorating rapidly. And it seems like maybe finally as he <laughs> looks like he may not make it out of that room. So yeah, um, we don't, this, this illusion of power that he had built up looks like it's pretty much shattered at this point. Yeah. We don't, we don't necessarily know the fates of those in the room, although it seems not to be very good. Yeah. Um, which we no, I mean, I would imagine if we see any of them again, it will probably be as vampires, you know, or maybe someone gets spared for some reason, but um, yeah, yeah, which is interesting. So we need to talk about that because we've already we've already sort of talked a bit about Angel. <laughs> in relation to Darla and Drew, but there's that 
sort of surprising thing that he does. Yeah. What, so how do you how do you feel about this and what what do you want to say about this before I I mean give my I definitely don't feel like this is a good decision this is not this is not healthy life choices in the story of angel um I I didn't really see it coming necessarily but I also feel like it's not totally out of keeping with what the progression of the season, you know, of him becoming less and less invested in this sort of altruistic mission of we help the helpless, you know, of like where we started, he's becoming, um, you know, more and more obsessed with Darla, you know, um, I mean, I think it started a little bit in the first couple episodes of like having to remind him to focus on what their mission is. And like, wasn't it in the first episode that like he started sort of acting as if he had already been redeemed rather than that's a goal that we're working for. So already he's Mm -hmm. sort of detaching a bit from what the original plan had been. Um, But certainly since Darla has been back, that's become an increasing obsession that's been blinding him to various things. And, you know, all of the others have gotten more and more frustrated. Um, So, I mean, I think this is a pretty shocking thing for him to have done, but, you know, he's angel and he's done some pretty shocking things in the past. So, yeah, um, I think, I think the thing that, like, you know, in, well, there's a couple things. So, one, he's certainly done shocking things, but most of them have been as angelus. As angelus, Not right. This is angelus. the most, this is the most explicitly angelus thing we've seen angel do, yeah. I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. But there's also, you know, I don't. I don't know that I want to defend his action, but there's also definitely a sense of he's basically saying to uh, Holland and the rest of them, you know, you made your bed and now you get to lie in it. And it's hard to like disagree with that in a way. Like, you know, Angel gets... um, I I think you get the foreshadowing earlier in the episode of, um, you know, of angels sort of saying like, uh, when Holland mentions something around, you know, you don't, you don't kill humans basically. And angel says, well, you don't qualify. Like, There is that sense of like, okay, like on the one hand, that's just banter, but when it comes down to it, he kind of angel, I guess, in a way he means it means yeah. that. And so, if he's not human, yeah. what does that mean? Is he seeing Holland as another sort of demon? And um, and he kind of, you know, he kind of says that you know, you set things in motion, play your little games up here in your glass and chrome tower, and people die, innocent people. 
Um, and Holland. Right, he's kind of positioning him as like almost a god. Yeah, that you know? or yeah, or a demon. Like who, in the, in the minor deity sense of like you're yeah. you're in your mountain watching over the fates of right. people and sort and of not just watching over, but like know, manipulating and manipulating them. Yeah. them. yeah, and and so you know Holland is you know sort of gets all bold and and yet I just can't seem to care. Um, which isn't right. true. Which, like we know, like that's posturing on Holland's part too, because he does care what happens. You know, it's just that the thing he wants to happen is to have people die. <laughs> like that there right. that there is a plan to this. Like he does care about the outcome. Um, it's just he doesn't necessarily care about the innocent people who are dying. He he right. cares about the result of whatever, you know, the plan is that their dying achieves so in a way this is this is angel sort of you know setting up no well not setting up but but you know acknowledging early on that that there's something inhuman about holland that like hmm. even though he might technically have human dna and you know have been born as a mortal human just like anyone else that that something has changed with his, you know, as part of his employment at Wolfram and Hart, that there's, mm-hmm. you know, been something, um, you know, to affect his humanity in a way that apparently Angel sees as irrecoverable. Um, right. At least if, if we, you know, that's, that's where we sort of see him at the end. Now, there's also the Darla card, right? Because there's there's the fact that, um, like you said, you know, he's sort of had this obsession with Darla, you know, since she came back, um, even before he knew she was back because she was in his dreams or whatever. Um, right. So there's that factor too. But, but at this point, like, you know, the angel that we see at the beginning of the episode, this sort of stumbling in with Gunn helping him and, you know, rooting around for a stake so he can, quote, save Darla. By the end of the episode, there's a completely different angel who Mm. recognizes that Darla is beyond saving, but also is willing to not just, uh, you know, sort of condemn her, but to condemn all of the people who sort of created her as well. Right. And using her to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so what, one of the things I think is interesting is that there's the bit with where they're, uh, driving and Cordy gets the vision that tells them to go in the other direction and very reluctantly Angel concedes and you get the idea that probably he's conceding because he hopes it'll lead them to whatever they're really looking for. Um, He certainly doesn't want to go if it's not contributing to finding Darla and Drew, but he does and they go and it seems like it's has nothing to do with that. It's just somebody who needs their help and Angel kind of, you know, gruffly kind of, tells him to get his act together, but is ready to just sort of walk out. And, you know, okay, so, you know, if we take as a given that these visions are sent by the powers that be for a purpose, 
you know, Gunn and Wesley seem to interpret that as meaning you have to do this. Like this is them telling you, this isn't like put this on the to-do list. This is, we're getting this vision now because this is where you're supposed to be. And, you know, not only does this person need your help, but what if this is the thing, what if you're not supposed to go do the thing you want to do? You're supposed to help this guy instead. And maybe so that, you know, to prevent you from going off you know, with Darla and Drusilla, which I think is really interesting because, you know, like Angel's thing about, this is, I think, the real problem with what he does at the end. He could just as easily have said his thing about, you know, Wolfram and Hart made this bed and they're going to lie in it. And my way of showing that I don't care what happens to them is to do what the powers that be tell me to and help this guy. Mm. And things would have played out just the same. Darla and Drew right. would have gone to the house. They would have killed everyone. Angel wouldn't have stopped them. And pretty much everything would have happened the same way that it happened. So his going to the house doesn't change anything, except that he's now responsible for it. Like... Yeah, or he, right, he responsible now, like, dr- by not trying to it, stop it. By yeah. not stopping yeah. it. But he's now culpable in a way that I don't think he would have been if he had said, I'm going to trust the right. vision and go with the yeah. vision. He still wouldn't have saved anybody. That's a great point. But like now he's like directly on the hook for right. it. Um, yeah, I, honestly, I never thought of it that way, but I think that's a great point that yeah, like you said, the you know fact that Wesley and Gunn sort of both point out maybe this is the thing that prevents you from looking for Darla and True means that they would have killed all the same people anyway without Angel ever right. being there, and which I think makes sense if 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 part of what the powers that be want is for Angel to be redeemed, then of course they don't want him to go and like give his blessing to this mass slaughter, you know, right. like this, this but does not they also to seem your to redemption be okay story. with the mass slaughter happening. <laughs> well, so, I mean, then we're back into, Hey, you gods up there in your glass towers watching and manipulating everybody, right. you know? And so you can level the same things at them that you do at Holland of, you know, but where angel is concerned, I think he is better off not getting involved than he is like being the one who says yes go do this thing right um right because because for his particular story because then the judgment comes from a higher level or whatever you know if it's right if it's the higher power saying hey we're gonna we're gonna let this play out because wolfram and hart decided to meddle in these affairs and it's backfiring on them Instead, you go over here and, you know, slap yeah. this doofus upside the head, uh, right. you know, a little bit. Then, right, like you said, that's that's Angel. Angel can't be culpable for that mm-hmm. because he's sort of listening to what they want him to do. Um, now, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to say anything one way or the other, but there's also an assumption here that the higher powers giving Angel the visions are good yeah which we, we don't, don't know. know we don't know we that don't they're know. bad 
but we don't we don't know any more than much about them at all. We yeah, don't no, know and there. that's a total that's a total assumption on on. My well, part. we don't know there. I do acknowledge that <laughs> we don't know their plans any more than we know the senior partners' plans. Um, right. and you could sort of imagine that just as Angel and Wolfram and Hart are you know sort of at odds on one level maybe these quote higher powers and quote senior partners are sort of at odds on a higher level you know or whatever right, you want right. to call that and so you know does that mean that one is good and one is bad well you know based on actions we can sort of do some heuristics and say well most mm -hmm. of the time angel seems to be saving people and most of the time Wolfram and Hart seem to be hurting people, you know, so, right. you know, you can sort of weigh it that way and, and at least make some assumptions. But, but again, we still don't ultimately know what the, um, you know, what the plans are for either one of those groups. So. Right. Uh, but yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. I've, I've never quite thought about it that way. And I think, I think you're right. I think it, definitely seems to be um at an interesting level of complexity to sort of angel's actions in that in that way and you know yeah it's just fun it, it just kind of is funny to me that he explicitly goes there just to say you know what f you <laughs> like he, go, he goes there and does nothing yeah he goes and says you know and which is interesting to wonder was that what he wanted to do all along? What was did he change his mind? Was that sort of we don't really know, you know? Um We we don't know. Although I <clears throat> if I were to guess, I would say that it was more an in the moment decision. Right. That that he probably had intentions of stopping them, but upon sort of finding them, you know, finding Drew and Darla yeah. there and remembering sort of Holland's, Holland's conversation. just said one too many, one too many wrong things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sort of the, the audacity and the, and again, the hubris of Holland sort of saying, you know, you rescue humans and, you know, just can't seem to care. <laughs> like that, yeah. that thing of, yeah. Uh, now, not face. to say that that's right or not, but I do think that it it does feel to me more like an on the moment at the moment decision by Angel rather than right. It's a moment of passion, uh, not a premeditated. Yeah. Uh, so, but we th but this that's what happens, and we get the appropriate reactions from the team. The kind of gobsmacked yeah, yeah. reaction of the others. They're all very much uh, sort of appalled uh, appropriately yeah. by what's what's happening. Um, and the thought that like that even like they feel a little bit of blame on their parts. Like Wesley, we should have spoken up sooner and, and then Gunn says and louder. And it's like but you guys have been speaking up Sure. Pretty clearly yeah. all along. Yeah. Like you haven't you haven't been withholding your opinions about how Angel is acting and how yeah. he should be acting. So Yeah, they've maybe not giving themselves enough credit. Um yet. 
Yeah, and and would louder and sooner have made any difference to sort of the way things worked out? I, who knows? Right. I mean, there's always a chance, I suppose. But it seems to me that the way Angel is going, that it wouldn't have. <laughs> right. Um, and so, yeah. So, I mean, if you were surprised at, uh, you know, Angel sort of locking Drew and Darla in with the Wolfram and Hart group, right. uh, I assume you were rather surprised by the very end there. The, the firing. Uh, of, where he yeah. just basically fires all three of them. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and we end on their equally shocked faces again of just, you know, silence. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I definitely wasn't seeing that coming. And, um, you know, interesting too, that it's not, they don't say, you know, they don't walk out on him that it's this sort of, uh, you know, you're going down this path and, you know, your darkness is going to consume you and you have to believe that. And Angel's like, I do you're fired. <laughs> like, you know, there's almost an acknowledgement there of like, I mean, he could just be kind of, I don't know, blowing them off. But I, I think I'm taking him at face value in that he seems to know that this is bad and dark. And like he said, I just can't seem to care. You know, there's a thing of like, I, I, it's not that he's not aware that this is not a good way to be going, but the ends are justifying the means that taking down the bad guys is worth, you know, uh, these questionable decisions yeah. seems to be his position at this point. It's not that he disagrees that what he did was wrong, but it's the decision I made and I think it was the right one. And so it's probably better if we just go our separate ways and sort of agree to disagree on this mm. point. Um, so at least that's the way I sort of read it, um, which makes it, it's, it's almost worse because it's like, you can't reason with that. You know, it's not like, Oh, we just need to convince angel that this is really bad and dangerous. It's like, no, he gets that. <laughs> He's just going to do it right. anyway. Right. Um, there's not really much you can say to that in terms of argument. Um, so I don't know. I mean, do you agree? Is that how you interpret that? Is, should I wait and see or? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think, yeah, basically from Angel, it's, uh, you're right. We're going in different directions. And so we part ways here. And yeah. I mean, it is interesting because the whole premise of the show was Angel coming to L.A. sort of on his own. And then he meets Doyle and then he meets Cordy and, you know, sort of like this team coalesces around yeah. him. So it's not like he ever set out to build up, you know angel investigations as like uh like there wasn't like his goal to leave sunnydale and start his own detective agency or anything right. that just sort right. of happened and, and <laughs> he was sort of given these like now the question becomes you know cordy's still having visions right and mm -hmm. 
presumably the powers that be still want him to do things. So how does that affect his redemption? How does that affect the whole Shanshu prophecy stuff? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, with, you know, with regard to his working to save people and whatever. But like, I think, like you said, like he's sort of pushed a lot of that away already. So, you know, hard, right. hard yeah, to say sort of, where, where things go from that. He's sort of cutting off his direct communication with them by, by getting rid of Cordy specifically, but all of them. Yeah. He's sort of, you know, explicitly saying, I'm going to decide what missions I take on at this point, rather than let, uh, anybody else tell me, um, it's not good. I mean, I, I, I agree that I don't know really anything about the powers that be and whether they are good, but um, aloneness is usually not a good thing in these stories. Yeah. That's generally not the way you want to go. Cutting yourself off from your friends doesn't usually make for uh, good things. Uh, yep. Generally, ever, but certainly in yeah. Whedon. Yeah, yeah, um, no, I mean, and we've sort of talked before how Whedon, a lot of his uh, shows and, and his characters and stuff are about, you know, bringing together sort of disparate people, you know, from different backgrounds or whatever to, you know, come together as sort of a family. So when, yeah, one yeah. person is cutting off the rest of the others, that that seems to be anti- uh Whedon-esque so to speak mm -hmm. um but yeah so um so we we started off talking about sort of the tone of this episode um I did want to just mm -hmm. bring up this is another Tim Minear episode the first episode I think we get from Tim Minear where we don't have like flashbacks <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um actually it was co-written right. co by him and Sean Ryan who um mentioned before he he's the guy who went on to create um the tv show the shield and uh, several right. others so uh you know good <laughs> but but both of them tend to be on the darker side <laughs> um mm -hmm. and yeah uh also, also a generally really really well regarded episode just from a um you yeah. know lots of surprises um i did i think i did mention before that this is um sort of like the mid mid-year break um so again right. remember it's coming right after into the woods the buffy episode right. um which also right. which, sort of yeah, ended on a big yeah big, right big sort of story ending thing there so we'll we'll be back with some buffy next week um which actually is a much lighter a Buffy episode. It's uh, a oh. Jane Espenson episode, so yeah, um, we'll get some. We'll get sort of a, 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 at least a brief respite from the darkness, um, and then uh, yeah, and then we'll have some more Doctor Who too. I guess. I guess we're getting into the finale. Uh, yeah. Set here. Well, yeah. Season um, season eight, series eight. It's only twelve episodes. So, um, slightly shorter year. Um, but so we have a two part finale 
um, which is the first two-part finale since Series 5. Okay. So, um, I think I kind of, for the finales, I think that's generally a good thing to let, give that a little bit more room to breathe. So, um, yeah, so we're getting into that uh, part one next time. All right. So we will see you then.